I'm excited to continue our Pray First series, but before we do, I just want to, um, I want to thank this church for, uh, for your generosity and your faithfulness to this church. Um, I, I, I believe that generosity, our, our giving, is a form of worship to the Lord, and uh, I just want to, I want to say thank you for this church's generosity and encourage you to continue to give, uh, both in person or you can give online uh, and set up a payment online on our website, afraidofforsquare.church. But I believe this, I believe that generosity is not something that God wants from you. It's something that he wants for you. Because when he, when you uh, allow yourself to partner with God and partner your resources and your time, your talents, your finances in alignment with God's kingdom and what he is doing through his church body, um, that our gifts are multiplied and they go farther than they ever uh, would by themselves. And so thank you so much for your generosity. And um, we're going to continue our series, Pray First. And I want to say hello again to everybody who's watching online. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for being with us. Um, we can feel your presence through the screen, and uh, thank you for, for tuning in with us. Uh, this series uh, is, has been all about prayer, and um, the kind of the tagline to this whole series is that prayer should be our first response, not our last resort. Prayer should be our first response. And uh, we talked about this last week, that I cannot have a relationship with God if I do not speak with him. And remember, I talked about how it would be like uh, you walking up to the altar and looking your soon-to-be spouse in the face and exchanging your vows with a smile on your face, but walking off the altar and never speaking to them ever again. That is what a relationship with God as a Christian looks like if you do not pray. That prayer is what links us to God. It's what gives us connection to Him. It's a conversation. It's a relationship. And I would say that I cannot have a relationship with God if I do not speak with Him. And we also talked about last week, and this is where we're going to kind of focus today, that there is a difference between praying for something and praying through something. Right? We talked about Jericho and how the Israelites circled the city, how our prayer lives should reflect that of Jericho and how we should circle our prayers. We should be praying through our prayers until we hear an answer from the Lord. The title of my message today is Shameless Audacity. And this phrase, shameless audacity, is seen in uh, the book of Luke chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Luke 11 uh, verse 5? Let me ask you something as you're turning there. Have you ever had the audacity to ask for something in your life that was just ridiculous? Have you ever had the audacity to ask for something ridiculous? I have a funny story to tell you, and my dad is going to help me get the facts straight. But when I was about eight or nine years old, we went to a PGA. Um, it was a, a, practice, a, a practice round for the PGA. And my dad and I were there watching the pros uh, from the sidelines as they were practicing getting ready for the PGA. I think it was 1998, correct? And uh, I'm off to the sideline. I'm, I'm about eight or nine years old, and I was trying to get all the pro golfers' autographs. And I, all I had was a Got Milk hat on. And so I was going up to these pro golfers as they were moving from the green to the tee, and I was asking them for their autographs. Well, I had a couple autographs, but I really wanted Davis Love the Third's autograph. How many of you golf in the room? Anybody know who Davis Love the Third is or Brad Faxon? I, I really wanted Davis Love's autograph, and I'm watching Davis Love. I'm, when my dad and I are on the, on the fairway of one of the holes, and I'm watching Davis Love golf with Brad Faxon. 
and they're on the, on the fairway, and it's totally quiet, right? Because just like, you know, like you're supposed to do when you're on the golf course, you're supposed to keep quiet as they're doing their backswing. And I, I le- leaned over to my dad, and I said, Dad, is it okay if I ask Davis for his autograph? And my dad says, yeah, that's fine, but he's thinking I'm going to ask, you know, as he's moving from the green to the team. And guess what I do as an eight-year-old? I yell out from the, fair, from the sideline as he's, uh, you know, lining up his swing, hey, Davis, can I have your autograph? I break the silence of the golf course and everybody, everybody from all around the sideline stops and looks around to who in the world had the audacity to shout out in the middle of a pro golfer's lineup as they're getting ready to hit a ball. And uh, I, I hear from Davis on the, green, on the fairway, sure, come on out here. I look at my dad and I said, dad, can I go? And dad says, what? just go. So I get under the rope, and I get out from the sidelines, and I walk onto the fairway with Davis Love III and Brad Faxon. And uh, I get Davis's autograph, and uh, Brad Faxon begins to talk to me, and he's asking me, hey, do you golf? And, and I said, yeah, a little, I mean, a little bit. My dad's a golfer, and I try to golf with him. And he says, well, let's see what you got. And he throws down a ball. He gives me his club. He says, go ahead, hit it. See how it looks. And I, I take a shot, and I sink it right into the pond right in front of me. <laughs> I put it right in the pond, and, and uh, he gets his club, and he goes over to the pond, and he fishes out the ball for me, and he signs the ball, and he gives me back the ball, and he signs my hat, and I had a story to tell. There was a, a couple photographers there. We've got pictures of it. We've still got the ball. My dad just showed me, you know, in the process of moving here, you dig up a lot of junk that you forgot that you had, and uh, we found that got milk hat. I should have brought it this morning. We found the ball, and we found the pictures that went with it, but had I not had the audacity to shout out in the middle of a, a pro golfer's lineup. If I hadn't had not the audacity to speak out in the silence, I would have never had that experience. I would have never had that story to tell. And in this passage, Jesus tells us to pray with boldness, with audacity, to be shameless in our prayers. So in Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 5, uh, this uh, passage parallels the story that we read last Sunday in Matthew. This is when the disciples asked Jesus, how then should we pray? Well, Matthew, uh, as we read last week, focuses on the nuts and bolts of the prayer. Uh, Matthew gives us kind of like, uh, like I said, the the nuts and the bolts. This is exactly how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And Luke does that as well. But Luke adds something to the story, adds something to the passage, that reveals something else about how Jesus asks us to pray. And this is what he says. This is after he goes to the Lord's Prayer in verse 5. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight, and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine is on a journey, and has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not give up, excuse me, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. And so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. I think we stop here a lot of the times and go, I can ask for anything. 
I can ask for a Lamborghini. I can ask for whatever the Lord says I can ask. And if my heart's right, I can have it. But this is what Jesus is talking about. Let's continue on. What is this gift that, that God wants, us, wants to give us? Verse 11, which of your fathers, if, you, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The Lord wants to give us the greatest gift of all, and we need only ask for it because he has been waiting and waiting. He was, at this point, as Jesus is giving this, God had been waiting since the beginning of time to give this gift to his people the Holy Spirit, to give access to God's presence to his people. Before that, we were separated from God by sin. We had the law. We had the curtain that only the high priest could walk through and commune with God. There were very few people in Scripture who could, who could meet with God. In fact, they still had to be separated. But God was waiting since the very beginning of time to give us the gift of the Holy Spirit that we would be able to commune with God face-to-face, have his presence live in us and work through us and and be uh, in our everyday life, be involved in our everyday life. And Jesus says this is what we are to ask for, but how are we supposed to ask for it? With shameless audacity. This word also is translated persistence. And there's also another uh, side to this coin. It also means uh, in order to preserve his good name. We're going to talk about that in just a moment, but let's, let's kind of break down what's happening in the context of this scripture. This, this passage is typically referred to as the friend at midnight, and what's so ridiculous about this man's request is not only that uh, he's going to his friend's house at midnight, but he's asking his friend uh, for, 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 for bread to host a traveler that was coming to his house. And you have to remember, this is the first century. They didn't have the supermarket down the street Bread was not readily available. In fact, they would bake bread daily to supply the need that they had for that day. And so a typical household would, would bake about three loaves of bread a day. And by the end of the day, you probably wouldn't have much left over. But this is what's so ridiculous about this request is this man goes to his friend at midnight and asks for bread. And this is assuming that he has anything left. He probably doesn't have anything left, but he asks anyway. He has the boldness, has the, the audacity to ask anyway for this bread. And in the first century, uh, what, uh, what, what families did is they slept in one big room together. So you had mom and dad and all the kids laying out on the floor in one big room. And so to knock on a door at midnight, parents... You can feel this tension, can't you? I know my wife and I can feel this tension. Uh, if to knock on the door at midnight meant, hey, I'm probably going to wake not only my friend, but all of his sleeping children who he's already put back to bed. This is a lot to put on my friend, right? But this friend, this man had the audacity to go to his friend's house and knock on the door anyway. I remember a time when we had some people uh, staying at our house and I, I replaced all the doors in our house, but I didn't do a very good job. So, so when you close the door, you had to kind of give it a little yank to close it all the way and it would bam, close shut. Well, our guests who came over and spent the night, they didn't know that. And so I remember having some friends over and they would come and they'd you know, have to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night and, and they'd get to the bathroom and they'd go to close the door and bam, you know, we had wood floors throughout the house and, and one time it woke up a child, one of our kids 
And I just, I just remember that feeling like, oh, you did it. You woke up one of my kids in the middle of the night. It wasn't very pastory of me in the moment, but I remember the feeling. I know the tension that this man is feeling. Another side to this, to this story, another aspect of it, is the idea of hospitality in the first century. That hospitality was really expected of you. If you had a, a, a visitor, you were obligated to be hospitable, to provide food and, and to be hospital, hospitable to this person. And it was for the purpose of protecting your good name. That in order uh, to, to preserve your good name, in order for people around you to think highly of you, you had, uh, you had to be hospitable. So this man had sort of a reputation to uphold and he had a name to uphold. So he goes to his friend and um, there's two things happening here. There's a persistent friend, and then there's also a man who needs to preserve his good name. Like I said, this passage parallels Matthew, and so the disciples in Matthew ask Jesus, how should we pray? And Jesus says, this is how you should pray, our Father in heaven. But Luke here adds an additional answer to the question. The disciples ask, how should we pray? And Jesus responds with persistence with shameless audacity. You should pray with boldness, like you have everything on the line. Like you have, you, you, are, you are looking for an answer. You should pray with boldness. So there's two things happening in our prayer life. We are called to pray with persistence, with shameless audacity, and we serve a God who is good who is going to uphold his good name, who is going to be gracious to us. He says in his scripture already to ask and we'll receive, to seek and we'll find, to knock and the door will be open. When you're asking for the Holy Spirit, when you're asking the Lord to give you a, a, refreshing, a, a refreshment or a, a newness of his presence, this is something that God has already said yes to. He's already said yes and amen to this request. So when we pray, we can pray with confidence. But how come, you know, if, if God says to ask and pray persistently, then why don't more believers pray through? Why do they stop? Why do they pray for, but they don't pray through? I believe that there are some obstacles that we face to praying persistently. There are some obstacles in the way. And so for the remainder of this time together, I want to talk about three obstacles. And these aren't the only obstacles to persistent prayer. But I want to talk about three obstacles that we have to overcome to pray persistently. And then following each obstacle, I want to share with you a mindset shift that needs to take place in order to overcome that obstacle. So the first obstacle to, to persistent prayer is this. It's the belief that our prayers won't make a difference. This is, this is something that quite, uh, quite a lot of believers uh, struggle with. And the, the idea is this. If God already has everything planned and he can't change his mind, if he knows my thoughts, if he knows what's going to come out of my mouth before I even pray, then why bother praying? Why take the time to do it if God already knows what I'm going to say? And this really comes from Psalms 139. and verses 2 and 4, the writer says, You perceive my thoughts from afar. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. And so kind of the struggle here is God already knows what I'm going to say. 
He already has a destiny. He already has a plan. So can my prayers affect any change? Can my prayers move the heart of God? What's the point of prayer if I can't persuade God to do something for me? Can we persuade God to do something for us? Can God change his mind and do something that he would not have done if we had not prayed? Well, let's explore this idea because uh, I'm going to take off my preacher hat just for a moment and kind of put on a, uh, a teacher hat, if I may. I know that I'm talking to a crowd uh, where you, a lot of you have been following Jesus longer than I've been alive, but I'm going to try to, for a moment, stick off my preacher hat, kind of put on a teacher hat, and I want to talk about a few um, pieces of doctrine that we have to kind of get straight in order to understand this uh, because it's important that we have good doctrine when we know, uh, when we're, when we're uh, focusing on praying to the Lord. And there's really a couple of different ideas here that, that people believe. And the first doctrine of the first piece of theology here is called open theism. And open theism uh, is the belief that because God has given us free will, he has made his knowledge of and plans for the future conditional upon our actions. And though he's omniscient, God does not know what we will freely do in the future. So the idea of open theism is God cannot know what's going to happen in the future because he's given us so much free will. Now remember, this is an extreme end of the spectrum, okay? We're going to talk about the other side of the spectrum, but this is one extreme side of the spectrum, the, the spectrum where, where um, if you're an open theist, you believe that God cannot know the future because of his love for us. He's given us so much free will that he doesn't know what's going to happen. And if you're an open theist, if you believe this way, you love to reference 1 Samuel 15, verses 11 and 35. And it's when God appoints King Saul uh, to be king over Israel. And in verses 11 and 35 of chapter 15, um, the Bible says, God says, I regret that I ever made Saul king. He says it. I regret. So did God change his mind? And then, did he not know that Saul was going to do this? And now he's taking back what he thought. He says, I regret that I made Saul king. But if we look at the same chapter in verse 39, we're kind of given the answer to this. Verse 29 of the same chapter says, he who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind. He is not a human being that he should change his mind. So in the same chapter of 1 Samuel 15, we have four uh, revealings of this Hebrew word that means to change his mind. Two of them are saying that God changed his mind, and the other two are saying that God cannot change his mind. So which is it? What do we believe? Well, I think the clue is here in verse 29. We already read it, but it says, He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind. And so change his mind is juxtaposed in the same verse with something that we know God cannot do. It's very clear in his scripture that God cannot lie. He is not a liar. He cannot lie. Therefore, we can assume that God cannot change his mind, that he knew that Saul was going to do this. And oftentimes for us, a change of mind, uh, it looks like a change of mind to God, but it's really just a change of action where a change of action from God looks like he changed his mind, but no, God sometimes allows things to happen and then later changes an action because he knows what is next. Um, another example that if you're an open theist you love to go to is Genesis chapter 22, 
Verse 12, and it's the story of Abraham and Isaac, and Abraham takes his son to the mountain, and uh, he's about to sacrifice his son, and he takes the knife, and he's about to plunge it into the heart of his son, and right before he does, an angel of the Lord stops him, and God speaks through the angel of the Lord and says, stop, now I know. He says, don't harm your son, but now I know that you fear God. Did God not already know that before? Did God learn something new that he didn't already know because of Abraham's free will and Abraham's choice. Well, we know that God knew already that Abraham feared God because we can read in Romans chapter four when Paul is writing to the Romans, he talks about Abraham and Abraham's faith. It says that he did not waver in unbelief when the Lord told him that he was going to have a son. He was already old. His, wife was his, his, his wife's womb was barren, was desolate. And the, Romans chapter four says that Abraham did not waver in his unbelief and it was credited to him as righteousness. So we know in Romans chapter four that God already knew that Abraham feared God. He didn't find out something different. And if you insist on open theism kind of being the correct way, if you still think maybe if, if you're sitting in that camp, maybe you have grew up in that camp, if you still believe that open theism is true, we can always refer to Isaiah 46 verse 10 where it says, plain as day, I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what is still to come, I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. So we know that God cannot change his mind, that he is, is all-knowing, he knows what's going to happen, he knows what you're going to decide. So then again, here comes that argument, why do we have to pray? If God already knows what I'm going to do, then what, what difference can I make if I can't change God's mind or persuade God to do something? Well, let's look at the other side of the spectrum. So we have open theists on this far side of the spectrum. Over here, we have determinism. And determinism is the belief that all events that happen are preordained or predestined to happen by God because of his omniscience or his all-knowingness. Determinism is incompatible with free will because the decisions, the decisions have already been made for us. God has already chosen who will go to heaven and who will go to hell. He has a select group of people that he has predestined to go to heaven. Like I said, this is the extreme side of this spectrum where God has already chosen who's going to heaven. He's already chosen who's going to hell. And so the question there is why do we evangelize? Why do we tell people about Jesus if God has already chosen who's going to heaven and who's going to hell? If you believe in determinism, um, Calvinists uh, will believe in determinism. This is the side of the camp that many Calvinists will fall on. And determinism, uh, they love to go to Romans chapter 8, verse 28, where it says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. And so many people, many, many, uh, people who believe in determinism would look at this verse and say, it's right here. God has predestined people to go to heaven. He's predestined people to go to hell. But what they don't realize and what we have to do when we read Romans is take into context that Paul is writing to a group of Roman Gentiles who are joining the faith, who are um, being 
persecuted by or, or being, there's, there's some pushback by the Jewish believers that they even belong in the faith. And so these Gentile believers in Rome who are coming into the fold, who are believing in Jesus, they have a hesitancy. Do I really belong here? Is this for me? Is this gospel for me? And Paul is writing to them saying, listen, you Romans, it was always God's plan to bring you into the fold. From the very beginning of time, it was God's plan to bring salvation to the Jews first, but also to the Gentiles, to bring you into the fold. You were planned, you were predestined to come into the fold. And so he's speaking specifically to a, an, a, 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 a piece of time where these Roman listeners need to hear that they belong to this faith, that they are brothers and sisters with their Jewish companions there in Rome. So where do we fall on this spectrum? We don't fall... And this extreme side of God doesn't know what's going to happen, that's not biblical. We don't fall in, and uh, God, I will say this, God does know all things. He knows what's going to happen. But there's a balance in the middle between God's sovereignty and mankind's free will. And there's a marriage that takes place. And I believe that uh, this is where our theology takes us, is right here in the middle. And we believe in divine providence. This is the third thing we're going to talk about this morning Divine providence says that God is omniscient and uses everything, both good and evil, for the benefit of those who love him. In short, God is in control. He knows what's going to happen, but he partners with mankind's free will to bring about his plan, his destiny. He employs humanity. He employs his church. He employs people to bring about his plan. And we see this, a great example of this in scripture is in Genesis, in the story of Joseph, where God allows for this calamity to come upon Joseph. He is allowed to be sold into slavery, but God's plan all along is to bring salvation to many people, right? And he employs Joseph, he employs him to bring about his plan of salvation to the world. Joseph had a choice in the midst of every one of his decisions. He could, he could choose to be bitter. He could choose to be angry at Potiphar. He can choose uh, to not... Uh, interpret the dream of Pharaoh. He, can, he has all these choices to make, but God uses Joseph and his choices to bring about the plan that he has for his people. Another uh, example of this is seen in the book of Jonah. In Jonah chapter four, uh, the whole reason that Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh was precisely because of what ended up happening. He knew, Jonah knew. It says in chapter four, verse two, this is what Jonah says. This is, he's frustrated because salvation has come to Nineveh. God relents from his wrath. He gives grace. He gives mercy to Nineveh. And Jonah is angry because he doesn't like Nineveh. And he says this in verse 2 of chapter 4. Isn't this what I said, Lord? When I was still at home, this is what I was trying to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents and sending calamity. God, I knew that you were going to be good. So did God know that Nineveh was going to repent if he had sent someone? Absolutely. God knew that Nineveh would repent because we know that God knew because Jonah knew and Jonah doesn't know more than God. God knew that Nineveh would repent, but he employed Jonah. He gave Jonah the choice. Yeah, it was the wrong choice at first, and he, he made it really sticky for Jonah. 
by putting him in the belly of the fish. But God employed the person of Jonah to give him the opportunity to partner with his plan of salvation for the world. God uses you and I to help fulfill his plan for the world, and we all have a free will to partner with God or not. I like to see it this way, that as a parent of the house, when you have small children, um, as the parent of the house, you are ultimately in control of what goes on in your house. Your job is to keep your children safe, to feed them, to teach them. What was that? <laughs> yeah, some parents are like, I'm not in control of my house, okay? It's okay to be honest. I feel that way sometimes too. I know, but ultimately the parent is supposed to be in charge, in control of the household. But you give your children free will in, the ter- in, the, in terms of they can pick which snack they want to eat. Sometimes you allow them to choose which shows they want to watch on TV. But ultimately what happens in the household is under your control. When they're young and, and, and you are the parent, you can say no to something and you can allow something. You are in control, but you give your children free will. The same relationship is with us and God, that he is ultimately in control. He knows what's going to happen, but he has given us free will to partner with him and bring in about his plan. Does that make sense? Are, are you still tracking with me? All right. So why should we pray then? Because our prayer changes our reality. Here's the mindset shift that we need to make in order to overcome this obstacle. We need to recognize that prayer changes your reality. That God listens to the prayers of his people. That it changes things. And it's seen all throughout scripture. God's people crying out to God and him answering the prayer. We can see it in Exodus 32. When the people of Israel, Moses comes off the mountain and the people of Israel have made a gold calf. And what happens? God is furious. In fact, God threatens to kill Israel. He threatens to kill everybody. And what does Moses do? He prays and he pleads on behalf of Israel and says, God, no, don't kill your people because everybody will think that you brought us out of Egypt into the desert only to kill us. And what does God do? He answers Moses' prayer. He relents. In 1 Samuel 15, we see that Hannah prays for a son, Samuel, and God gives her a son. In Exodus 15, again, Moses prays for food and water in the desert, and God responds with food and water. In 2 Kings 20, verses 1 through 7, Hezekiah asks for uh, more years of his life, that God would prolong his life, and God gives Hezekiah 15 more years of life. Wouldn't that be nice? I'm not saying that maybe God will do that for you, but that would be really nice. 2 Kings 20, Acts 12, verses 5 through 12, the church prays for Paul to be released from prison, and God responds, and Paul is released from prison. And the numerous times in the book of Acts where the people of God, the disciples, lay hands on the sick, and they recover, they're prayed for, and they receive healing. God responds to the prayers of his people, and prayer changes our reality. I love this quote by Mario Murillo. He says this, I am certain that our bitterest regret will come when we're in heaven and we see for the first time the real power and privilege of prayer. Our spirits will cry out saying, if I had only known how I would have prayed. Our, ch- our prayers change reality. They change, we reach into the spiritual realm 
in order to affect the physical and the spiritual. God gives his followers power and authority because the Bible says that we are seated in heavenly places with Christ. We are children of God and our prayers affect the heart of God and they change our reality. So that's the first obstacle that I want to talk about this morning. The second obstacle is going to be shorter. I won't take as much time on this one. This is a heavy one. I was praying about this this week because I believe that this one, um, this one is, is one of those under, underground obstacles that we don't always like to admit. But the second obstacle is that we lack confidence to pray persistently because of sin in our life. We lack confidence because of sin. Our conscience is not clear. We have shame in our life, and it keeps us from approaching the throne of grace with confidence, as the Bible talks about. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 21 and 22, it says, Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, then we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. But oftentimes our hearts condemn us. Our conscience condemns us. We think that we're not worthy enough. We're not righteous enough. We're not good enough to ask God for this. We're not good enough to pray through because God's not gonna hear my prayers. I'm not a righteous person because the Bible says that God hears the prayers of a righteous person, right? Remember, Israel had come out of Egypt, but they were still enslaved by the habits and behaviors and mindsets of the Egyptians. They were still slaves in their minds and their, and their hearts. And in the same way, the Bible says that we're made righteous because of Jesus. But when we continue sinning, we forget about the right standing we have with God. And we can't approach the throne with confidence because the enemy uses shame to make us think that we're not worthy. He keeps us going around in circles thinking, I can't, I can't ask for this. I'm not good enough. God doesn't hear my prayers. I'm gonna go ask the pastor to pray for this because he's got some sort of backdoor access with the Lord that I don't have, which, by the way, is ridiculous, okay? I think a lot of people, they come to the pastor or the leaders of the church thinking that somehow God, God sees them more, God hears their prayers more. No, I look at people like Jethro and the guys on the council and I'll go, man, God hears your prayers way more than he hears my prayers. How do I get that? I believe it's history with the Lord. A lot of our council members have a history with God. They've had a relationship with God that they've developed over years and years. Here's the mindset shift to overcome this obstacle. We have to recognize, we have to know the difference between conviction and shame. We have to be able to put our finger on shame when it rears its head in our life. We have to know when it's the enemy trying to keep us bound in sin, in shame. Conviction is good. Conviction is from God, and it reveals to us what needs to change. But shame is from the devil, and it separates us from God. It keeps us far from him. I would encourage you in your prayer time, take a moment to talk about your sin. Repent to God if you need to confess, and maybe find someone that you trust. Find a, a friend that you can confess with, that you can share your sin with, that you can be honest with. We need to get rid of shame in our life if we want to pray with boldness. We need to get rid of those things that the enemy can hold on us because there's been times in my life where I come to the Lord and I say, Lord, I'm asking you for this and I'll hear the voice of the enemy in my head going, no, 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 you can't ask for that. God's not gonna listen to your prayers because you did this this last week or you said this. Remember that interaction you had with this person? God is holding that against you and he's not going to listen to you. 
Listen, in that moment, I can look at the enemy. If I recognize that it's shame, I can look at the enemy and say, listen, devil, you have no hold on me. I have already confessed for this. I've already repented of this. I am no longer that person. I, I do not give in to that sin anymore. You have nothing to hold on me. You cannot point your finger at me. I'm free in Jesus' name. We need to know the difference between conviction and shame. And here is the third obstacle. The third obstacle to praying persistently. I think that a lot of us in our prayer times, I don't know if those of you who were here yesterday, I found myself doing this where, you know, we prayed for about 30 minutes. We had some worship time and yesterday morning we uh, had about 30, 35 minutes of, of prayer time where we went off by ourselves and we had alone time. I found myself uh, getting distracted and my mind moving off to different things. Did anybody else experience this before? No, everybody was focused. You guys had no idea what I'm talking about. Good, good for you. But, but um, I find myself uh, uh, coming back to small talk, deferring to small talk. And here's where I think the third obstacle is. It's lacking conversation pieces. What do I mean by that? One of the prime, I love this. This is a quote by Mark Batterson in his book, Circle Maker. He says, one of the primary reasons we don't pray through is because we run out of things to say. Our lack of persistence is really a lack of conversation pieces. Well, why do we run out of things to say? Why do we have a lack of conversation pieces? Because the solution is to pray through the Bible. The solution is to know what God is already doing, what is on God's heart, how to align yourself with God's heart. And when you fill your heart and fill your mind with the promises in Scripture, what God has already said, you have something to talk about. Think of prayer as it's supposed to be a dialogue, right? It's not a monologue. It's a dialogue. It's a two-way conversation. Think of the Bible as God's part of the script. And prayer is our response to his initiation. God has initiated a conversation with us in his word, and prayer is a response to that, to that initiation, to that conversation. So what's the mindset shift? What's the mindset that needs to take place here? We need to link our prayer life to the Bible. Link your prayer life with the Bible. That when we read the promises of Scripture, we should, we, we should not only read through the Bible, but I believe we should be praying through the Bible. When we read a promise of God in Scripture, it should be circled. It should be, yes, God, you've already said this. And so when you come to him in prayer, you say, Lord, in Isaiah 53, it says that by your stripes I'm healed. God, you've already said yes to this. I'm believing you for healing in my life because you've already said yes to this. Lord, I'm being condemned by the enemy. He's trying to keep me in shame. But Lord, your word says that I'm righteous, that I have right standing, that I can no longer be bound to shame anymore. I'm a new creation. God, I stand on this promise. You have something to talk about when you hold tight to the word of God. Link your prayer life to the Bible. And I love what we read in, in Luke chapter 11 that, that there is a gift that God wants to give you. There is, a, there is something that God has already said yes to. And I, I, this, yesterday as we were praying, I guess there was a new, a fresh um, revealing of this promise in scripture that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was, I believe, not just meant to be a one-time thing. 
Throughout Scripture, we see people in the Bible who, were, uh, who received uh, a fresh baptism of the Holy Spirit multiple times. And there are times in our lives where we just need to ask God for a renewal. God, would you refresh me? Would you pour out your Spirit once again? God, I've wandered away from you. I've gotten distracted. Would you give me your Holy Spirit once again? And when we ask for that, that is something that God is more than willing. He's so excited that we are asking for that. And he's more than willing to give us that. I want to pray in just a moment, but before I do, I wanted to read, um, these are some of the promises in Scripture. These are identity statements in Scripture that the Lord has spoken over us. Now, there is 50 of them on this page, and if you bear with me, I'm going to go through all 50 of them real quick, and after I say each one, I'm going to point to you, and I want you to give me your heartiest amen. I want to hear an agreement from you, okay? Can we do that together? Here we go. Are you ready? We're going to go through all 50. I am a child of God. Amen. I am forgiven. Amen. I am a new creation. Amen. I am a temple where the Holy Spirit lives. Amen. I am delivered. Amen. I am redeemed. Amen. Come on, don't stop now. I am holy without blame. Amen. I am established to the end. Amen. I have been brought closer to God through the blood of Jesus. Amen. I am set free. Amen. I am strong. I am dead to sin. I am more than a conqueror. I am a co-heir. I am sealed. Don't get weak on me now. Come on. I am in Christ Jesus. I am accepted. I am complete. I am crucified with Christ. I am alive. I am free from condemnation. I am reconciled to God. I am qualified to share in his inheritance. I am firmly rooted. I am called of God. We're halfway there. I am chosen. I'm an ambassador of Christ. I am God's workmanship. I am the apple of my Father's eye. I am healed by the stripes of Jesus. I am being changed into his image. I am raised up with Christ. I am beloved of God. I have the mind of Christ. I have obtained an inheritance. I have access to the one spirit excuse me, I have access to be one spirit to the Father. I have overcome the world. I have everlasting life. I have the peace of God that transcends all understanding. I have received power. We've got 10 more to go. Here we go. Stay strong. I live by and in the law of the spirit of life. I walk in Christ Jesus. I can do all things. We shall do even greater things than Jesus did. I possess the great one in me. I press toward the mark. I always triumph in Christ. My life shows forth his praise. My life is hidden with Christ. I am victorious. If you want a copy of these statements, I have scriptures uh, along with every one of these promises. And if you need conversation pieces in your time with God, if you don't know where to turn, and you want to know what are the promises that God has given me? What, is he, what has he already said about me? How has he initiated the conversation with me? We can turn to scripture and we can turn to the promises of God and know that I can talk to God about anything, but especially these things because he's already said yes to them. Amen? Yeah. Let me pray for you. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for two groups of people. Uh, I, I want to pray for this first group. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me? Lord, I, I pray for everyone in this room and everybody watching online and for this first group of people. God, I pray for those who have wandered away from you.
God, the people who are watching online, maybe the people, uh, maybe there's people here or watching online who have never had a relationship with you before, God. They don't know what a persistent prayer life even looks like. It's so foreign to them. And God, I pray for those people this morning, um, God, that you would woo their hearts, that you would draw them close to you so that they can begin a new journey with you. If you're in this room, or maybe you're watching online, would you just lift your hands if you want uh, to restart a relationship with the Lord? Maybe you need to recommit your life or start a new relationship with the Lord. If that's you, would you raise your hand? If you're online, would you just comment? Would you say amen or something? We want to pray for you. Anybody in this room? Praise God. God, I thank you that uh, you are so good that you've already called us to yourself. And Jesus, I pray that, um, Lord, we don't want to be a church that uh, reverts to small talk. God, we want to pray what's on your heart. We want to pray your agenda for our lives in this world, in this church, this community. So, Father, would you renew our faith? Would you renew our strength? And for the second group of people, maybe you are weary, you're tired. You've been weighed down by what's happening in our country. You've been weighed down by what's happening in your family. Maybe you've been weighed down by personal sin, whatever that is, and you need a clean slate. You need the Holy Spirit to pour out fresh on you. I want to pray this morning that the Holy Spirit would pour out fresh on you if you need that. So if you're in this room, I want to remind you what Matthew 28 says, Come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you are weary in this room and you need a fresh pouring of the Holy Spirit, would you raise your hand right now? Raise your hand. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Here, you can put your hands down. Here's what I want to do. I want all of us to stand up together. Everybody in this room, stand up. And just like the Bible talks about in Luke 15, let's take a moment to cry out with persistence for the Lord to give us the gift of his Holy Spirit once again. For those of you who especially who raised your hand, but I believe that the Lord wants to pour out fresh on this church. So right now, would you put your hands towards heaven? And would you begin to pray in your own words? Just repeat after me. Father, Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Your word says that I can ask and I will receive. I've been weary. I've had a heavy burden. But I give it to you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you fill me new with your presence? Would you restore to me the joy of my salvation? Would you give me a new hope? Would you give me fresh eyes? Would you give me forgiveness? I pray against all shame from the enemy. Satan, you have no hold on me any longer. Jesus, thank you for your newness in my life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen. God bless you, church. We're not going to end with a song this morning, but I just want to say how much uh, I, I love this body of people. And so uh, feel free to uh, make your way to the cafe if you'd like some coffee. We have some coffee in there. And feel free to have some coffee and hang out for a little bit. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.